0: Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Continuing from verse 14, I am bound both to the Greeks and non-Greeks both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is God's word. I thought this evening, um,
1: before we jump into really what we look at the rest of the term, or Matthew's gospel really for this term, we'd have a little look at this passage in Romans to remind us that we have the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we should not be ashamed. Let's pray together. Father God, you give us many good gifts, and we thank you for this building and our location and one another and the encouragement it is gathering together. But Father, how relieved we are that our confidence above all else is in you and your work by your word amongst us. And in particular this evening, we think of the power of your gospel to create new life, to sustain it, revive it. So please, we ask, very simply, be doing just that even now, even this evening. Strengthen us, renew us. Open our eyes. By the power of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So really, chapter 1, verse 16 is what we're looking at. Chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God. For the salvation of everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, what if you could actually say that? I am never ashamed uh, of the gospel message. Uh, Be you a Christian, or actually one who's uh, here and uh, would prefer not to be known that you're here as a non-Christian, because you're a little bit embarrassed about the fact that you might be going to church, i.e. you're ashamed. It's quite easy to be ashamed. Now, of course, you could make the mistake, as I often do in my own head, of thinking, well, this is Paul. Paul. And he's a nutter. Of course he was never ashamed. He was just mad for it. He just went around the world telling people, never a moment of inhibition, never a false word. He's just a Bible nutter. And I think often in my head I think of something like, uh, if you've seen the film, not sure I'd recommend it, but here we go. Anyway, The Hurt Locker, um, which if you have seen it, is a bomb disposal expert uh, in Afghanistan. And he's a nutter. He just doesn't care. I'll go and defuse the bomb. If I die, couldn't care less. And he's just a meathead who gets everyone else into trouble because of it. And I kind of think like that about Paul sometimes. Well, of course he's got no problem telling people about Jesus because he's a Bible meathead. If he dies, he just doesn't care. He's a nutcase for Jesus, as it were. I'm going to suggest he isn't. Because, well, at least a couple of reasons. You can read in his first letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, he reminds them that when they first met him, he came with fear and trembling and nerves. Well, that's interesting. That is a little bit more like how I sometimes feel if I speak to people about Jesus. And Paul felt that too. Interesting. Maybe he wasn't just a meathead after all. Maybe he was human. and um, Maybe, just maybe, even though he felt nervous when he had to tell people about Jesus Christ, or desired to tell people about Jesus Christ, he got over that nervousness. Well, how did he do that? And that's already what we're looking at this evening I guess the fact even here in chapter 1, verse 16, he declares the fact, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, suggests either either he was tempted, and I think he probably was, or there are many people there in Rome who were ashamed of the gospel. It's a very normal sort of experience to be ashamed. Now, why is that? Why, if you were a Christian, or even if you're just on the outside, as it were, not yet a Christian looking in, would you feel a little bit nervous or perhaps ashamed of this message about Jesus Christ. I think there are voluminous reasons. Let me suggest a few. Here's one. Sometimes we wonder, is it true? And that causes us to wobble. And we don't want to speak of Christ because it might not be true. So we may have a little wobble on that. We wonder, is it actually true? And I take it most, not all, but most here go through some period of greater or lesser extent of questioning, doubting, perhaps. It was all right for Paul. He met Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That would make life easier to believe that he was risen from the dead if you met him. But of course, on that simple one, you just need to go back to the facts, the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to remind yourself, yeah, this is true. That might be one. More common, I think, is uh, we don't want to be thought of as stupid, And if you're a Christian, many would have had the experience of uh, someone, a friend, a colleague saying, look, I don't get it. You're a bright guy and yet you believe that? Those fairy tales? You know, what is it with you? You're not a stupid girl and yet don't you know that Christianity's been disproved? Brackets. Don't think so. When do you think that happened? It didn't happen. But anyway, that sort of... Yeah, That sort of... Oh, I don't, I don't like it when people suggest that we may not be the sharpest, that we're a little bit Luddite in our beliefs. You need to recognize that culturally that is very much a a strategy or a tactic. I may have quoted this once before, I'm not sure. Uh, But um, a little while ago, a few months ago, I uh, was reading Richard Dawkins' website, as I like to do. No, I don't like to do. I do uh, on various occasions. And um, he's writing to people who follow him. Richard Dawkins, obviously a pronounced atheist. uh, And he posted this comment. When talking to believers, we should go beyond humorous ridicule. We should sharpen our barbs to a point where they really hurt. I'm interested in the fence-sitters, who haven't really considered the questions very long or very carefully. I think they're likely to be swayed by a display of naked contempt. Nobody likes to be laughed at. Nobody wants to be the butt of ridicule. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, a bit odd to post that publicly, but very interesting. Okay, everyone, atheists out there, here's the strategy. Don't engage on whether Christianity is true. Don't engage on the facts. Don't try and persuade people with reason or logic. Just mock them. Mock them. Say it's ridiculous. Say if you believe the Christian faith, you're Stupid. I don't ever engage on the issue of the veracity of the faith. Just mockery. Isn't that interesting? As a tactic that's been adopted there. And so his view is just deceive people with verbal bullying. And I take that sometimes. We feel that if you're a Christian. You kind of feel that sometimes. Everyone just assumes it's ridiculous now. I feel a bit embarrassed about saying, actually, I think it's all true. So it may be an issue of truth. It may just be an issue we don't want to be seen as foolish, stupid. Here's a third, a final one. Uh, often, if you're a Christian, we don't like to be thought of as judgmental. And in a modern culture, or today's culture, um, a biblical ethics can often seem just conservative to people who aren't Christians outside the church on issues such as Sexual ethics. Or then there's the accusation that comes. You are a bigot because you say that Christianity is true and Buddhism is not. And you're a bigot for saying such a thing. Well, you know, hold on. Buddhism says there is no God. Christianity says there is a God. I mean, you can't both be true. Can you not see that? That's not complicated. I don't think that's a bigoted statement. They don't mesh very well. And yet people get quite angry and animated. A little while ago, I was out for dinner uh, with a bunch of blokes, uh, a bunch of neighbors. And um, to be fair, uh, one or two of them had had a few drinks. And so their volume was louder than normal. And something came up about Christianity. And uh, one of them shouted at me. I won't repeat because I'd be shouting and that'd be annoying for you. But one of them shouted at me, you shut up. Your views are utterly intolerant and you have no right to speak. Now, I repeat, he probably had had at least five pints. I didn't think that was the moment to engage on the irony of that comment. (laughs) And yet, it often comes, doesn't it? So I wonder, there are just a few why we might be tempted to be ashamed to speak of the faith or even to acknowledge we're thinking about it. We wonder if it's true. We don't like to be thought of as Stupid don't like to be thought of as intolerant. I guess behind both of those latter ones is we just want to be liked and not cause a fuss. And that's very human, very natural. And Paul would say, don't be ashamed. I must read the application of this little passage. Don't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed, he says. Okay, Paul, how did you get over your fear and trembling and weakness? Let me tell you. It goes like this. The logic runs really from verse 13 and... Uh, uh, the NIV doesn't pick up all the little connections, which is a bit of a shame. Let me just pick it up from verse 14, though, uh, and insert what is there in the original Greek. Uh, I'm so sorry to say that. Uh, just, but just so you pick up the flow of what he's saying here. I'm bound both to Greeks and non Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Because I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, because in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith, because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So there's a whole it's all one sentence, a whole sort of long train of logic. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, I put it on the outline. You can follow it through, hopefully. The main point here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God, because it reveals righteousness. Okay? Let's work through those. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God, because the gospel re- reveals God's righteousness. Okay, first thing then. I'm not, don't be ashamed of the gospel. First one, it's a very long point, and I'm going to say everything slowly. Because it's the power of God for the salvation of all types of people. Let's have a look at that. First little thing then, it's the power of God. The message then that Jesus Christ is Lord in his identity, in his death for sins, in his resurrection to new life, in his return to judge, the message of Jesus Christ, it doesn't seem very powerful. It seems quite weak. And yet it is here that God chooses... To locate his power, Paul doesn't say the gospel is a power of God for the salvation. Not a way in which people can be saved, but the way, the only way that anyone will spend eternity in heaven and not hell is because of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So look, uh, here we are. Uh, we're launching a new, new little venture in the life of our church. We we'll trial it, and if it works, great. But here we are going to two services, and uh, it would be easy to be a little bit daft and think, okay, wh- wh- how will this work? How will this work? Where what is our confidence in? Is it in the the quality of the music, or the facial appearances of the people on stage, or the um, or the quality of the cakes, or whatever it is? Is it in those things? And you'll notice, we got some new speakers when they were being fitted. One of the guys, gag, guys um, was joking. He said, yeah, the, the new speakers, so loud, they'll blow the godliness into you. <laughs> they'll just blow godliness into you, the speakers will be so loud. Ha, ha, ha. So, you know. And that's obviously that's not how they're using them, fortunately. But, ha, ha, ha. How ridiculous. You can't do that. And yet, where do, what do we think? Is actually the power to change people's lives here and now and save them for eternity? Is it in the quality of my gags? I'm sorry, then we'll be in trouble. Is it in the quality of the music? Well, it is good, but you know, some weeks I'll have bad weeks. Obviously, it happens. No, it's in the gospel. That's where God locates His power to save, to transform. And many here would just would testify in very simple terms. God's power saved me through the gospel. I would say that. I, aged nineteen, had no desire to become a Christian. I, as far as I was aware, had no need to become a Christian. Life was very good. And yet someone explained to me the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I thought that's very wonderful. I think I need to become a Christian. It's the power of God. It was unremarkable. and I can't remember what they said, really, but it worked. It's where God ties his power to, his gospel message. Okay, so um, don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. Secondly thing here, for salvation. Still in verse 16. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, he doesn't say conversion. I think there is a difference. Uh, Just a technical moment. Uh, When Paul writes, most of the time, when he talks about salvation, he's talking about the end of history. Most of the time. So the gospel is the power for conversion. It's how anyone is converted and becomes a Christian. He's not denying that. It's the power for justification when you first become a Christian. But most of the time, when he talks about salvation, he's talking about the end of history. Okay? I.e., We are 100% and completely and fully and finally and and everything is done, saved, rather than you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you're righteous now, you're converted, you're living as a Christian, but you've still got to get all that way to your deathbed. Do you see? Salvation is the end point, normally, but not exclusively, but normally, when Paul writes. Which is why it seems to me, verse 15, he can say to the Christians, that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you. I want you to hear the gospel if you're a Christian, because that's what will keep you until you arrive in glory in heaven, as well as the gospel being the message which saves people. Uh, excuse me, which converts people or puts or, or people causes people to put their faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. So actually, whether you're here for the first time tonight or you've been here a decade, you need the gospel. That doesn't mean that every week will be two ways to live and we'll flip white pieces of paper and black pieces of paper around as you've seen done in in various ways and forms because we'll work through what is it Matthew and then Ruth and then we'll finish off Hebrews after Easter so normal type of thing but we need the gospel message the identity the death the resurrection the return of Jesus Christ it's what makes you a Christian at first it's what keeps you a Christian you never move on from that it's the power for salvation so I'm always slightly nervous to hear when people I don't know, have moved and they've moved city or countries and you say, oh, and house church? It's okay, it's okay. Uh, to be honest, what you get on a Sunday, the Bible teaching, it's a funny old mix. But fortunately, um, we were well taught in the past uh, so we know which way is up and so we can just get on with serving here. Well, there's something to that but it's very dangerous thinking really. Because it's the gospel that will preserve you in your Christian faith as well as bring you into the Christian faith. So you want to hear it all the time, not just what you've heard in the past. Don't cut yourself off from the power. Okay, so don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation. Salvation from what? Well, he's going to go on to say that from chapter one, verse 18 downwards. The salvation from the wrath of God, which is being revealed. No time to really unpack that. But only to say, Christianity is a rescue religion. And some people won't like the gospel message because it says, to become a Christian you must repent and believe. You have to change and you have to admit that you need a saviour. Now, other religions are different, of course. They're self-improvement religions. Come along, and we'll make you a little bit better. And Christianity is not that. And the gospel is not about that. It's a message of salvation. Now, people won't like hearing that they need saving. And, of course, that's why many of us feel a little bit nervous when that language comes up. But, Porsche, you've just got to get over that. I remember eternity. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, imagine uh, somehow uh, you're on your travels and uh, you're traveling through uh, some obscure tropical island in the North Sea uh, that no one's discovered because it's the North Sea and it's tropical uh, so you're on this, you, you come across this bizarre island that, uh, western healthcare has never reached. And it's all, in one sense, fairly, uh, primitive. And, uh, but it's idyllic. You know, there's coconuts on the trees and, uh, uh steak lands, you know, rains steak and chips, uh, in the, evening. it's an idyllic place. And, uh, you swim in the crystal turquoise, not sure what color that is, but anyway, uh, waters of the sea. And it's wonderful and idyllic and it's beautiful. One day, uh, you're out swimming and, uh, one of the locals, I don't know why, because they're all brilliant swimmers, um, coughing and spluttering and is drowning uh, and manages to just make it to the shoreline and collapse and has stopped breathing. And everyone gathers around and says, He's dead. Golly, he's dead. And you think, Well, he might not be dead. Let's just have a go at a little CPR. I remember this. I've got my bronze medallion from life saving and swimming. Let's do a little bit of CPR. And you remember your training? So you, t- you turn him over, you do airway, breathing. What's the C? Check the pulse, good. Uh, just making sure you know. Um, you do your A, B, C, and you think, no, okay, let's go for a little bit of CPR. And you remember your training, so the tune of staying alive, you go, da 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 know, that's how, they, that's how they teach it these days, isn't it? Because it's, you know, that's the beat you're meant to pump to, so you pump away, and then couple of breaths in, and everyone around you goes, Argh! what are you doing? What are you doing? He's dead, and you're beating him on the chest, and you're kissing him on the lips, and why are you doing that to a dead man? You're weird, you're strange. And they try to pull you off, and you sort of fight them off, and you and you pump away, and eventually, bloke who's lying there on the beach, spits out the water, rolls over her, and they say, oh, he's alive he would say, yes, you thought I was such a fool and so stupid and so cruel for beating him on the chest and kissing a dead man on the lips, but I was saving him. And so you get over your shame, embarrassment, the ridicule and mockery and anger of others. You get over that because you know you can save him. And for the next decade, Mr bad swimmer who he cuffs something, he thinks you're wonderful. He never stops thanking you for enduring the ridicule, the mockery, the irritation, the anger of all his family and friends. Because had you not got over your shame, he'd be lost. Do you see that's what Paul is saying? He doesn't say, do you know what? I stride into a new town like Corinth or Colossae. I wander in and I'm so confident and I just tell everyone the gospel and it always works. You now, if one Corinthians anything to go by, he says, I arrive in a new town and I'm nervous and I'm scared. and I don't want to speak to anyone about Jesus Christ. But I'm not ashamed because I know that when I do, some people are saved for eternity and not lost so I'll endure the mockery, the accusation. Often, you, know, you read Book of Acts, which many of you are doing, gets run out of town. He'll endure all that because he knows he's got a message that will save and save forever. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of all types. Still in verse 16. Brilliant progress. For all types. Verse 16, for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. First for the Jew, as God's chosen people in the Old Testament, then the Gentiles. Or as Paul puts it just above, all sorts of people. Verse 14, I'm bound to both Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and the foolish. Greek speakers in the first century, they're the educated people of the day. So he's going to Rome, obviously their native tongue is Latin, but if you're educated, you also speak Greek. It's the sort of elite language. But the non-Greeks, literally in the text, it's barbarians, the idiots. So I am the gospel preacher to the elites and the idiots. I'll preach to people who live on Park Lane and who live on Benefit Street because the gospel is the power of salvation for all types of people. Now, I don't know about you uh, uh, and uh, the flat, the block you live in, or the street you live in, certainly on our streets, there are all types of people. There are, I don't know what do you call them, traditional professionals, either partners in law firms, and partners in surveying firms, or uh, creative professionals, professional artists, professional composer, professional conductor, all those sort of things, all those things. They're the mentally unstable, you never know quite if you'll get a kiss, or a p- off from them, always exciting, actually, uh, they're those. They're the debauched. They're those who'll be, well, you see them this afternoon, four o'clock in the afternoon, steaming drunk, rolling around in the road, snogging. I think it's four o'clock on a Sunday, for goodness sake. All types, in one street, that's London. Now, most of us will feel more naturally inclined to one group than another. Yeah, give me the lawyer, I'll talk to him. Yeah, give me the conductor, I'll talk to them. Give me the person in the street just not the, not the mad one in the middle that's just quite you know tricky they're unstable I wouldn't know quite what to do if they try to kiss me but um, we all feel more naturally comfortable with one group or another but the gospel is for all and so we do something slightly different at these two services five o'clock and seven o'clock and it, who cares if the aesthetics are a little bit different the music's a little bit different the the vibe is a little bit different the seating is a bit different I don't know Um the message is the same. Because the gospel is for all sorts of people. Doesn't matter upon temperament, ethnicity, class, anything. Saves all people the one message of Jesus Christ. It's the power of salvation, the power of God for the salvation of all types of people. So don't be ashamed of the gospel. And he goes on, uh, a second little thing, more briefly. Uh, The connection comes, verse 17. Okay, why is it so powerful? What is the power? Did you you explain it a little bit more, Paul? Very glad you asked. Here we go. Because, verse 17, 4. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written in Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. Uh technical moment. Some will know that this is literally the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. It could mean his character. He is righteous. He is just. He is supremely wonderfully fair and will never do anything unjust. It could be referring to that, the righteousness of God. It could be his activity. He's searching out and saving a people for himself, as it promised in the Old Testament. The righteousness of God is seen in his act, action of saving. So it could be a character, it could be activity, or it could thirdly be his gift. That is, righteousness is a status that he grants to people. It could be all of those, or any of those. I think here, probably most likely, it's the latter. The focus falls upon the change of status because he's talking about the gospel power to save, it is then that the gospel restores us, all of us naturally alienated from God, and restores us to a right relationship with him. It's a status that is different. And it's described here, as Paul often does, particularly in this book of Romans, as the righteousness of God. Let me just remind you in case you forgot how wonderful that is. He doesn't simply say forgiveness. That in the gospel, forgiveness is revealed. He'd say that elsewhere. And forgiveness is a wonderful thing. But if you've done something wrong, if you know you've sinned against God and you're forgiven, that is great. But what happens when you do it again? or you do something else. You need more forgiveness. But what happens if it doesn't come a second time? It's not merely forgiveness that is granted, but righteousness a perfect status that you can never lose. Or let me give you a daft illustration. Uh, uh, to try and make the point. Uh, there's a criminal. His name is Jim the Knife. And uh, Jim the Knife is a sinister sort of criminal with a scar on his side. You know, He's obviously a criminal. Uh, and he's banged up for 10 years in prison, armed robbery, because he's done the crime. Now he hears all of a sudden comes a nice gold-leafed uh, letter, gold envelope from the Queen, and it does two things. It's a pardon for him. Brilliant. Brilliant. Don't know why. But Jim the Knife can go free But now he's out on the outside. It's okay, it's better than being banged up. But he can't get a job because of his criminal record. And he goes back to the same crowd, and before you know it, he's committing crime again. So it's okay, but isn't everything he needs. But hold on a minute, there were two things in the letter from the queen. She says, I pardon you, and I give you a peerage. Not just one of the sort of daft little peerages, Lord Burt of Western Supermare or or somewhere you've vaguely heard of and not really know. But, you know, a proper one with land and everything. You know, the Duchy of Cornwall. Cornwall's a big place. Charlie's quite busy. He doesn't need it all. Chop it in two. And you can be Lord Jim of Truro. And you get loads of land and loads of money and income with you. Now, that radically changes his life. Jim the Knife is now Lord Jim of Truro. And he doesn't need to get a job because he's loaded. And he doesn't need to go back to his old friends because he's got lots of new ones. Because if you've got money, you've always got people who want to be your friend. Anyway, but uh, he's got new friends. Do you see the difference? He doesn't have to go back because the status is so different now. He's not just forgiven. He's given much more. And there's a sense in which, a sense of righteousness here, when we're forgiven in Jesus Christ, we're not just given a pardon, but a peerage. We're not just having our sins wiped away, but we're given the status of perfection. God looks upon us and says, I love you. I will always love you. I see you, as we've sung already this evening, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's very wonderful indeed. It's wonderful. Righteousness. And that's how God saves. Through the gift of righteousness when you trust in Jesus Christ. And look, that's how Paul overcomes his shame. He knows the difference the gospel makes. Feels fear and trembling and weakness, but says, look, I've just, I just got to get over that because I know that the gospel saves people forever. No different to Jesus. It's very striking you read in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 We're told that Jesus Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. It's really interesting, isn't it? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. There's Jesus, he's there, just about to go onto the cross and thinks, this is awful. I'm going to be exposed, it's going to be a desperate moment of shame. But you know what? you can just shut up shame because I'm going to go and achieve something very wonderful the salvation of countless millions uh, across the whole of history so shame I don't care I don't care about you shame I despise you, you're so irrelevant compared to what's about to happen and Paul says we, we need to know somewhat of that okay, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to have this, you know, I'm feeling weak and trembling, and I want to speak to someone about Jesus Christ, and it could be a bit awkward, but oh, for goodness sake, just get over that. Because what it can achieve, this message is wonderful. Save people for eternity. I thought thought this morning I'd finish off giving you one of my favourite little stories about Hudson Taylor. You know, hurrah, off he went to China. And, uh, you know, was attacked millions of times, but still took the gospel out. It's very wonderful and encouraging. Actually, let me tell you a different story, which was last Sunday. A chap who comes here here in the morning brought a friend, and they enjoyed the service very much. But afterwards, they went for lunch, and they were talking about it. And uh, the issue came up of different religions. And he said, so you think only Christians go to heaven? Yes, I do. And the friend was outraged. Just went ballistic at them. That's so unreasonable. I can't believe he holds his... I just don't know you anymore. And he's a friend and a colleague and it was a bit awkward the following week at work. And uh, he says, yeah, it was quite a hard lunch. The same Christian on Tuesday night brought another friend along to Christianity Explored. I just think that's magic. Not literally. (laughs) I think there's someone who just takes a real buffeting that says, look, I know... I know the gospel does that. People don't like it sometimes. But I know what it can do. It can save people from death, for life, forever. So I just keep on going. Oh, shut up, shame. Shut up, embarrassment. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, even though I'm weak and fearful and trembling. Because it's the power of God for salvation. And it's what we trust in. It's what we trust in. We don't need to be ashamed, because God is very powerful. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, it seems bizarre to us that you would tie your power to save people to a message about your Son, relating to events of 2,000 years in the past and events to come in the future, but that you would invest a a message that we speak with our faltering words with such extraordinary power is bewildering to us, yet you are wise and that is what you have done. Um, Many, many of us here in this room know the power of the gospel that opened our eyes to see how wonderful Jesus is, how wonderful it is to know righteousness, How wonderful it is to have the certainty of a future with you in glory. So, Father, would we get over our embarrassment, shame, and know that in your gospel is power to save. Amen.